0: Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message.
1: Mario, this is George Lee from RTE. I cannot wait for today's episode on the environment. Rain, floods, drought, the end of the world, apocalypse now. Oh, I love it all. This new misery will keep me going on RTE for years. The COVID thing between yourself and myself is starting to wear thin. I need fresh misery. Thank you, Mario. Loving your pod. This is Michael O'Leary. Here we go again. Typical. Just as people are getting back onto planes, here come the Dublin 6 right on pinko liberal avocado toast woke brigade with their end of the world nonsense. Where do you get these muppets? The UN report. You know what UN stands for. Unbelievable nonsense. Now shut up. This is Danny Healy You talk about the driest summer in history. I'm looking out my window here in my pumpkin king yard yeah, and, and he's lashing down, so of it's 8 o'clock this morning. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. Stop yeah. licking each other's faces and <laughs> put your yeah, t shirts back on. This is a reputable establishment.
0: Well, as you can hear, we've had a very divisive reaction on the phone lines this week to our special guest, John Gibbons, one of Ireland's most vocal, passionate and well-known environmental campaigners. This is a subject that I am totally fascinated by and um, concerned by. And when I need somebody to explain something to me and answer some of the many questions I have, uh, maybe on your behalf about this issue, John is the person I go straight to. As a result, he was a regular guest on the Sunday Roast radio show and we thought that it was high time he joined me here on the podcast for an in-depth chat, considering the week that's in it, of course, with the major new UN report um, highlighting a possible cataclysmic um, eventuality to our planet, an apocalyptic situation on the horizon, uh, unless we do something and act pretty soon, i.e. now. But in our conversation, we didn't just get into some of the big environmental issues and threats we're facing right now. I also wanted to get to know more about John the Man. In other words, I've been talking to him for years about the environment. But often you would be fascinated. What drives a man um, to um, spend so much of his life uh, uh, pursuing this? Um, Who he is, where he's coming from, uh, what drives him, as I said, uh, to be such a passionate and consistent advocate for all things climate related. And we really got into some fascinating areas. You ran a successful business. Still do, okay. Oh, still do. Yeah,
2: I'm. I'm taking the afternoon off to come
0: chat to you. No, you don't. Yeah, my, oh, the, oh, you still
2: run the business. I still run the business. Oh. Yeah, and I, and I do my my climate activism and my environmental journalism on the side. I kid you not. Real environmentalists know that I'm a fraud. I'm. I'm I've got the imposter syndrome. They know that. You take areas reclaimed areas like Merino. They're going back to the sea. Uh, you take uh, what we call the island of Hoth. The area behind Hoth, Sutton, yeah. is very just above sea level. Hoth, Ian Dempsey lives there. Yeah, well, uh, He's gone then, is he? Yeah, he, well, he'll be coming to work on a boat. But joking <laughs> apart, uh, Hoth will be an island by 2050. In April '67, when I was, uh, I think three, three and a half, uh, our family farm and home was raided by the Special Branch at about six o'clock in the morning. Which Why? I can uh, well because we hadn't paid our rates. Mm. So they came and basically stripped the house. Uh, we had we had one tractor at the time. They took it. Uh, whatever cattle we had, they took them. So everything was seized. But this he was
0: an original environmentalist.
2: Yeah, he was, and and I think I think he was moved from the environment to tantric sex, as far as I know. So I suppose, uh, well, just
0: Are you whatever. Trying to tell me something here is this scenario you're going
2: well you know It's it's a certain amount of uh, yeah, deep heat and a little bit of rubbing and a certain amount of friction and uh, (laughs) things things getting hotter
0: my chat with John is coming up in a few minutes time right here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast which of course as always is supported by Curry's PC World we love bringing you this podcast for free every week and the support of Curry's PC World really helps us to do that but what also really helps us and believe it or not is your ratings and reviews, like climate change, you too can make a difference on a microcosmic level by giving us a rating or by giving us a review or by sending me an email at rosenstock at gmail.com directly to me. I see them, I read them and I get back to them. And when you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify. Uh, so thanks to everyone who has already hit those buttons. And if you haven't already, then we'd really appreciate if you did. So it's all about the Premier League these days. The Premier League starts this week. Um... The first match is on on Friday the 13th and of course my colleagues in the podcasting world have been ablaze talking about it each in their own unique style including The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, the Premier League gets underway this weekend and to look forward to this great event, I'm joined by probably the greatest human being ever to be born in this country. I'm talking about John Giles. Hi Eamon. John, it's a fascinating season ahead. What are your predictions as you see them, John? I don't have any predictions, Eamon. Sorry? W- why not, John? I'm no interested in it anymore, Eamon.
1: The Premier League?
0: No, football, Eamon. load of rubbish. The whole
1: thing is overrated. Overhyped what? nonsense, Ayman. Sorry, John? No, it's a pain in the hole, Eamon, to be honest. Well, John, when did you come to this uh, conclusion?
0: Just recently, Eamon. I was watching the championship game there and I said, this is a waste of time. So i sticked over to blue planet. Great programme about drafts, no. Eamon. No, no, no. Hold on, John. Man United. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, the fight for the title. Yeah. The, the, the battle for survival. Yeah. I couldn't give a bollocks, Eamon. Well, this changes things dramatically on the stand going uh, forward. Um, Niall Stanage,
1: you, you any good on the football? I'm afraid not,
0: Eamon. <laughs> no. And of course, one of my favourite podcasts, My Guilty Pleasure. My therapist ghosted me with Vogue and Joanne. They've been on the Premier League as well. Oh, my God, Joanne. What? Do you know the Prem is starting this weekend? What the fuck? What are you talking What's the fucking Prem? Joanne, what it's on like the Premier League. You tick. Oh, is that like that foot soccer kicking thing? Yeah, you know, like your man Klopp, the guy you fancy, that guy. I love him. Dude, Jesus, the teeth. Yeah. They're definitely veneers. Oh, his teeth are amazing. Who's, who's the fella that got the arse job? Arse yeah. job? Yeah, Starling or something what? The guy who kicked all the balls in Euros Can you remember Starling? Oh, Raheem Sterling Fast He didn't football. get an arse job He totally got an arse job There's no <laughs> way that's his real arse If he didn't, I want his arse <laughs> uh, It is a good arse, alright Amazing arse fairness. Next time I go to Pablo <laughs> for the massage up and down thing I just want the arse Maroon Sterling <laughs> Raheem arse. Sterling Whatever, it's fucking savage arse Yeah <laughs> Cool And of course, the ubiquitous, the omnipresent David McWilliams Ready to go, John? Yeah, ready to go, Dave. Just no funny voices this week, if you don't mind, yeah? Funny voices? Yeah, you know that working class stick you were doing just recently? Just kind of cut that oh, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That? Oh, that was only a bit of crack, John. Yeah. Back to normal this week. Okay, ready? Okay, here we go. Ah, oh, how are you doing, me old flowers? meow old sagosha, David! Here what what's going on, which is the premise starting this weekend over here, and I'm here David. with me old Gable and John. David, how are you doing, me old pucks butler? i cut out the stupid accent, will you? For God's sake. You will just give the punters what they want. Straight McWilliams, right. a few dodgy analogies, just give them what they want. Crap old economics. Right. Um <clears throat> Property is like the Premier League. That's better. Man City. Are at present the landlords, Love it. while Leeds United are reluctant tenants with their tenancy unsure. Okay, we're back. <laughs> and don't forget that we have a brand new sketch for you on every single episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. So please hit that subscribe button, or on Apple, or the follow button on Spotify, uh, so that you never miss a sketch. Well. This week saw the publication of a major report from the UN IPCC which said that climate change is widespread, rapid, intensifying and caused unequivocally by man. John Gibbons and I recorded this conversation just a few days before the report was released, but everything we talk about hits directly on the things covered in this report, so it is very timely indeed. So here we go. So, John, thanks very much for joining me on um, the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Now, you and I have been talking since about 2018 and um, it's always, uh, you know, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And um, it's great to hook up with you and talk to you again. But one thing I've never talked about is you. And it is, of course, fascinating to find out you're a person who's on the radio and television all the time. And you're writing for the Irish Times and you're an environmental uh, journalist and commentator. But what what is has, what, has, what has motivated you to... Um, to feel so passionate about this area. I mean, you could you could have done something else, John.
2: Yeah, f- fair enough, Mario. And delighted to be here. Um, yeah, most people I think want desperately want to be right. So I would love to say, you know, as a guest of yours from three years ago. Yeah, well, you remember all that stuff I was telling you about Mario. I was right; they were wrong. This is a little unusual. I'm in the in the peculiar position of being the guy who wants to be wrong. I'm constantly looking for somebody to tell me, no, John, you're, you've overcooked that, you've, you've overplayed that, you're wrong. Because I guess what we're dealing with here is, is really the heavy end of, the, of, I guess, the situation that we're in. So I get no pleasure in being right. I really do. I get absolutely no pleasure in being right. But I suppose to answer your question, why, why get involved in something like this? I mean, I can give you the short version or the long version uh,
0: and I suppose... Well, is it because you look at your children? I mean, you have... How many children do you two have? Two kids. Is it because you... Is it, is it a cliche? Is it because you look at your children and you go, oh my God, the world my children are going to inhabit and I'm going to try and do everything I can in my power to make the world that they grow older in better? Or is it... Do you have a deep loving... A deep love of our of our environment are you a, in a kind of a, a hippie dippy kind yeah. of way or are is there something is there a fire in your belly about mm. this
2: okay well first of all I'm I'm absolutely not a traditional environmentalist I, I get described as such but real environmentalists know that I'm a fraud I'm, I'm I've got the imposter syndrome they know that um, I'm a guy who breezed into this probably around about um, I'd say 17 18 years ago and yeah and
0: what had you been doing
2: Um, Well, prior to that, I was uh, running a business, a publishing business and a creative business. So I come out of a journalism background, but I found the money was far better being on the management side of things. So basically, I've been an entrepreneur since the early 90s, uh, run a successful publishing creative business. uh, We've got about 20 staff and so on. So this is the, the, the alter ego to the, to the, the Cape so, Climate so, Crusader. So bro, yeah.
1: you ran
0: a successful business? Still do.
2: Okay. Oh, still do? Yeah. I'm, I'm taking the afternoon off to come chat to you. No, you don't. Yeah. Oh, oh, you still run the business? I still run the business, ah. yeah. And, and I do my, my climate activism and my environmental journalism on the side. I kid you not.
0: Well, f- well, forgive me for because hmm. to all intents and purposes it would it would seem to me that you spent all your time doing that.
2: I sometimes, uh, my my uh, business partner might agree with you that, on okay. that one but in fact, no, a lot of the work I do like last night you're, you're right until one o'clock in the morning and you do your, your work during the day mostly but it does impinge of course it does and over time I guess I've given it more and more time. And so why? Yeah, well, okay, why? Uh, as I said 17, 18 years ago yeah and maybe it is a cliche but it was around about the time that my, my first case uh, was born and I did I just had that moment of, of kind of thinking you know okay I'm at this age and by the time she's my age it'll be mid-century and that was a kind of a real real kind of I don't know coin drop it's all of, of Damascus yeah if you like but it just occurred to me and then From there, I would never really thought about the future, to be honest. And as I said, I'm not a traditional environmentalist. I remember laughing at the likes of Sting, trying to save the rainforest back in the Mm. 80s. I thought it was hilarious. So that was really where I was coming from. A bit of a hard show. Mm. Uh, Not not a natural uh, tree hugger at all. And uh, as I said, I then happened uh, across a book, which was actually written by a nice boring book, uh, written by a geography professor, which was a kind of an environmental history of the 20th century. So I read that, I put it down and went, oh, my God. Uh, you know, because essentially he just said, uh, we've, just, we've just used up most of the world in the 20th century. And he said, uh, and he wasn't being judgmental. It wasn't even about climate change or global warming. It was principally about uh, resource exhaustion and accumulated pollution. Okay. And I got to the end of it and went, oh, my God. How, how can I have got to nearly the age of 40, as I was at that time, without understanding these things? I felt like a gobshite. I really felt like a fool. And then my next reaction is, well, no, he's the gobshite. Right. So I went off and read a whole bunch of other books. I went to his references, took out a bunch of them, bought the books, read those. I went, uh oh, I think I'm the gobshot. So I spent, that was from about 2002. So I spent from about 2002 to 2007 obsessively reading. I didn't talk about it, I didn't write in public about it at all. So I spent about five years educating myself on this because I started from a position of knowing squat about the environment, squat about climate. So I went to conferences, I went to meetings, I spoke to people like Professor John Sweeney, and mostly, which is a shock to people who know me, I listened Right, I sat and I listened because I knew I was the gobshite in the room who knew very little about this. Mm. And then uh, in early 2008, then, uh, I suppose I got a break. I got a, uh, the opportunity to write, uh, well, I thought it was an article. It turned into two years of a weekly column with the Irish Times, mm. uh, which was a bit of a crash course, especially with two young kids at home and a really demanding full-time job at the time. Uh, But anyway, at the end of that, thankfully, my marriage survived it uh, just about. Uh, Although she does uh, remind me that had it been a three-year column, it probably wouldn't have. So, but anyway, at the end of that, yeah, that was my crash course. And that, I suppose, threw me uh, into the public domain on this, where I've been to a lesser or greater extent ever since. But it is, Mario, it's one of those things, uh, you know, once you've popped, you can't stop, as they say. Mm.
0: And often in your work, you go head to head with farmers, et cetera, members of the agricultural uh, establishment. But like, you know, y- you're arguing against them on the radio but you're not coming from, you know, another vested interest, because you yourself, you were you were the son of a farmer.
2: That's right, and not just a farmer, but uh, like a, a prominent NFA, you know, he's, he's long deceased, but a, a prominent NFA, IFA activist back in, back in the 60s and 70s, so yeah, it's very much in the blood, and I grew up on a farm, and like when I was in school and college, uh, you know, you worked the farm in the summer. I always called myself a, a summer farmer. I always found uh, farming a lot more pleasant uh, when the sun came out, uh, a lot tougher in the winter, and I will say this, it's a tough job there's no doubt about it uh, and uh, so I don't see myself as I certainly don't see myself as, as, the, as the natural enemy of farmers but I have certainly gone head to head and will continue to go head to head with their representative bodies who I think uh, have basically sold ordinary farmers down the river.
0: But, and you were saying your father was in these what w- w- was it that did?
2: It was a rate strike yeah this is right the, there was basically a large NFA rate strike in 1966 and it culminated in a march not, not driving their tractors but they marched on foot from all over Ireland and they marched all the way to Dublin and they demanded to see Charlie Haughey, who told them to feck off right <laughs> and Charlie actually Described the IFA at the time as pipsqueaks. He had mm. a great turn of phrase. So anyway, the, 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 they were not for turning. So nine, nine of them were selected to sit on the steps of the Department of Agriculture demanding to be seen. Hmm. So they sat and Charlie again told them to feck off and they sat and they sat for 21 days and 21 nights on the steps of Dole the NFA or the nine frozen arses as they yeah. were famously <laughs> recalled. <So laughs> and my your dad was one of these? My father was one of those, that's 21, right. days, and 21, 21 days and 21 nights? 21 so, days and 21 nights. Sleeping? Uh, well, they, they had there was caravans and things around <laughs> there but they stayed on site. They never left during all that time. So they were, they were pretty deter- determined uh, about it and then in April 67 when I was uh, I think three, three and a half half, our family farm and home was raided by the special branch at about six o'clock in the morning. Why? uh, Well, because we hadn't paid our rates. So they came and basically stripped the house. Uh, We had had one tractor at the time. They took it. Uh, Whatever cattle we had, they took them. So everything was seized and the house was cleared out. And I'll be honest with you, it was a terrifying thing. I remember it distinctly. It's probably my earliest memory. I was absolutely terrified. I remember the phone rang downstairs and my father went to answer it and a guard stopped him. And picked up the phone, a white phone, and put it down again. Mm-hmm. Right. So, as a kid, this is to see. This is like, I suppose, a real, a real punch in the face. Uh, and Jack Lynch, the then Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, uh, he, he actually threatened to proscribe the NFA he said they were a threat to the security of the state and it kind of makes me laugh because these days of course the NFA are the state or the IFA they are the state That's right and in, they, they spend their time trying to, to portray uh, NGOs and environmental activists as the ones uh, the, the shit stirrers but if you look at your history books you'll find that that's that there's a strong history there both in my family and indeed in that organisation of uh, shall we say uh, shaking things up
0: yeah, and I've and that's why we're talking because you you um, turned up on Mario's Sunday roast, and I had enjoyed your contributions on the Matt Cooper show and also on the Irish Times, etc. And one of the things I enjoyed about you was um, uh, h- how you were able to use language well, how you were able to string a sentence together, but also how you were able to listen as well. So you are a good listener. Um, but this exhaustive and obsessive uh, reading that you did um, resulted in who you are now and what you do now. And I suppose the next place to go, John, is I mean. it's it's been a torrid summer and in terms of climate change. And I suppose I haven't caught up with you in ages, but let's put them into a few categories here. How bad are things now on planet Earth? Yeah,
2: um, I guess it's, it's been a cruel summer. Uh, the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we've seen things that basically the science said can't, really can't happen. Like what? Uh, well, for example, the, the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest is a, a, more or less a physical impossibility. In, in, a, in a world without... Um, now, this
0: is, Ameri- this is yeah,
2: the, sorry, America. Yeah, sorry, the Pacific Northwest of America into it, Canada. Yeah, into right? Canada, right. So, so Canada it, became
0: yeah. the hottest place on yeah, Earth this on Earth year. on
2: Earth for a while. And to take one uh, infamous example, uh, a small town called Lytton in uh, British Columbia. Now, it hit 49.6 degrees. Now, that was five degrees warmer, sorry, hotter than any temperature ever recorded in Canada and the best way I can describe that is it's like you're watching the Olympic 100 metres and some guy runs the 100 metres in six and a half seconds and you say well that's impossible. He must be on steroids. Our climate is on steroids. It is coming off the rails and it's coming off the rails uh, pretty fast. Now to be honest some people say oh the scientists didn't tell us the scientists didn't tell us. Yes they did we may not have listened, but they have been howling about this stuff for years. I've been going to conferences. I've been reading about it. I've been listening. They have been laying this out very clearly. We're pumping energy into a closed system. Okay. Right? It's like we're putting coal into the furnace, Mario.
0: Yeah. and Here's some of the little, little uh, scatty notes I took in terms of what's been happening, right? So the Arctic was up to 35 degrees centigrade. The Arctic Circle.
2: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, it's important to realize that the Arctic Circle... That the, the land up there, and for example, nearly fifty percent of the land area of Russia, much of which is inside the Arctic Circle in Siberia, is made not of soil as we understand the it, but permafrost, permafrost yeah. right? Or as we now call it, used to be permafrost. Yeah. Now, permafrost contains as much trap methane as there is CO two in the atmosphere today times a multiple. Mm. So you don't want your permafrost melting. That's a really important thing to say. Also, of course, uh, an important thing to say also about the Arctic is that it is... All kinds of strange things are happening in the Arctic. And just like Vegas, what happens in the Arctic <laughs> rarely stays in the okay. Arctic. So we know, for example, that the Arctic is currently... We thought it was heating up at twice the rate of the mid-latitudes. We now know it's heating at three times the rate yeah. of the mid-latitudes. Now, beca- the reason for this is some boring stuff, like, for example, the albedo effect. The albedo effect simply means that white surfaces reflect heat. Uh, Dark surfaces absorb heat. If you put your hand on your car on a sunny day and it's a white car, it's stone cold. You put your hand on a black car, it's roasting hot Mm. and it's the same temperature. So the surface of the Arctic Ocean, which is a very large area of sea ice, reflects heat, vast amounts of heat back into the atmosphere. As that melts it exposes dark um, seawater sea underneath. So it goes from bouncing 90% of that heat energy into absorbing. space to absorbing 90%. That switch alone is... Uh, it's reckoned to be worth about 25 years. You remove the Arctic sea, o- sea ice in the summer completely. Yeah. In Premier wor-
0: League terms, it's a six-pointer. Uh, yeah. Because instead it, of you, you, when, you, when Man United play Chelsea or whatever, the winner will lose three points, but the, wi- the winner will get three points, but the loser will also lose three points and go further behind. So it's like a six-pointer. That's
2: a good way of putting it. And in, if I were to translate it into sort of, you know, climate terms, um, to lose all our Arctic sea ice in summer, jumps us forward in energy terms about 25 years into the future. Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah. Uh, heat waves in Ireland, of course, right. Parts of, I was, uh, West Virginia, um, the, this island off West Virginia in America is disappearing. Slowly. Yeah, um, that's so right. There's, there's,
2: we're losing islands. Uh, through. It's a mixture of sea level rise, of course, yeah. uh, coastal inundation. We've seen yeah. exactly the same thing in coastal areas all around the world. Yeah. We've seen, for example, the New York subway. Uh, you may have seen videos of people uh, having to get up to their waist in water in the New York subway. Yeah. Uh, there was other videos. I actually tweeted out one of them the other day, taken by a, a person in a subway in um, a Chinese railway station. And, they, and the people in the subway It was quite surreal. It was like something out of a, you know, some kind of hammer horror. They're all up to about their chest in water inside a closed subway train, wondering whether the water would continue to rise while their phones holding up their phones and getting signals out, possibly the last signals they'll ever get out. Now, I believe that those particular folks survived, but many didn't. But all over the system, and I think it's really important to say this because I, I keep hearing this thing and said, well, is this incident climate change? Was that incident climate change? Right. We're not really going around with a scorecard saying, well, this one is and this one isn't. That basically, the simplest way, Mario, to put this is the underlying climatic conditions of Earth have changed radically, even in the 30 years that we're talking about here. Say, if you go back to 1990, Italia 90, right? Which, by the way, is now closer, 2050 is closer to where we're sitting today than Italia 90, right? Now, the climatic conditions on planet Earth in 1990 are significantly, and for human terms, irreversibly different to the climatic conditions of 2021. But the climatic conditions of 2021 will be... Unrecognisable to the climatic conditions of 2050 and 2060 and 2070 in ways that uh, would make your eyes pop and your hair fall out.
0: Okay. Now, we first talked in 2018, right? Yeah. So this is 2021. Have things changed in terms of a tipping point or in terms of exponential, um, exponentially things getting worse since even that time? Yeah. Measurably. Really? Me- so in other words, even, even since twenty eighteen, models have changed. They're, so the models are worse now than they would have been in twenty eighteen? Thing about models is
2: they don't give you a result, they give you yes, a range.
0: Yes. Okay? So you but can have l- the range changed. Yeah. What we're seeing
2: is that the outcomes are falling in the higher ends of the range, all over the place. Right? We've had this thing about so well, what about climate sensitivity? What about clouds? What about this? What about the other? But a couple of examples. Right, some of the things that have been saving our bacon over the last 30 years. Let's take the Amazon rainforest, our friend. Right, Apart from all the oxygen producers, the Amazon rainforest has been a massive um, carbon sink. What that means is it draws down hundreds of millions of tonnes of carbon a year and traps it. What we've now discovered is, in the last decade, the Amazon rainforest is a net carbon emitter. It pumps out about a billion tonnes net carbon per annum. So the things that, were, that used to be brakes... Have now become throttles. Yeah. Now that's where you start moving into tipping points. Tipping points. Where, yeah. as I say, the, the elements that used to be to be brakes start becoming accelerators. Now, because we have in our models have actually counted on things like the Amazon being, you know, there. And the Amazon to flip from, as I said, holding back climate change to actually putting the boot down, that's that's pretty scary. We also know, for example, that the ability of the world's oceans to draw down carbon and heat at the moment of all the heat impact of global warming goes into the oceans. 93%. -hmm. So all this atmospheric warming, Mario, that we're dealing with is only about 7% of the heat. The rest is going into the ocean. And what you're getting there is the building up of potential energy. So the oceans are warming. They will continue to warm for a very long time. And the impacts of that, what does it mean? As water warms, it expands. So apart from sea level, like so that's driving sea level rise. Uh, and we're going to, I mean, the oceans are going to continue to heat and expand. Uh, and of course, uh, as glaciers melt into them. So this is a, a combination effect. And again, the ocean at the moment is our friend. It is a break on climate change. But if the oceans begin to fail to absorb carbon, then the atmosphere is likely to heat up in ways that you just can't imagine.
0: You mentioned 1990 there, right? And yeah. that's, you know, just 30 years ago. Sure. And that's one of the things that has happened, that within our own lifetime, lifetimes, even within our own generation, you can remember when weather was different. You can yeah. remember when... For example, this, this one, I'm always quoting this one, when insects used to hit the screen when you drive through places in summer, now no insects are hitting the screen. That's right. Um, you know, you could remember a, a certain coldness to the winters and a kind of a mildness to the summers. Yeah. Um, and not this sort of torrential, sort of two, 100 millimetres in two minutes of rain. So w- with that in mind, and bearing in mind what you said, how bad it is now, I've asked you this before, three years ago. So you might as well, get, you might as well update me. How bad could it get soon?
2: Okay. I'm going to give you, instead of giving you my opinion, I'm going to give you some of the science on this. Oh, okay? this is what I want. Yeah, of course. Right. There was a major study published on this in 2020, which got bugger all pickup, by the way, because we were all too busy with COVID. But we, maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. And this study projected that on current trends, areas of the world, about, they said that about 19% of the land surface area of the world will be too hot for humans by 2070. That's 50 years out. OK, so that takes us back to, say, 1970 to 2020, 2020 to 2070. So 50 years out, about 19% of the world's surface, land surface, would be un- uninhabitable for periods of the year for humans. And the thing about periods of the year, that could be all summer.
0: Do you know what, for example, what kind of p- places you're talking of about? Of course, yeah. I give mean, us the, a few.
2: Sure. Um, large sections of uh, India. The thing about India is that a lot of people live in India. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sections of South and East Asia, which again is highly densely populated, mm. uh, right through the Middle East.
0: Now, it doesn't need to be an expert to go, what's going to happen to the hundreds of millions of people well, who live the, there? Well,
2: the, the figure is three billion.
0: That live in those places.
2: That will be living in places that will uninhabitable. be uninhabitable for mammals. Oh, gee. Okay. And there's a concept called the wet bulb temperature. Uh, people are used to high temperatures and the figures like, say, 50 degrees or 54 degrees in Death Valley. But a much scarier temperature to think about is what's called a wet bulb temperature. That means if you literally got a, a thermometer, wrapped the base of it in a rag, soak that rag in water, right, to, to, to minimize the heat. When that thermometer hits 35 degrees centigrade, humans die. Mm. It doesn't matter, by the way, if they're sitting in the shade drinking water, humans die basically mammals die mm. that's a that now we can withstand high temperature short term i've i've been in 50 degrees for a very short uh, period once upon a time it was horrible but I, I didn't have to stay out in it for very long and mm. survived but a wet bulb temperature 35 degrees humans die we, we just, we will, f- we will simply die mm. in our droves, okay? You get an experience like that, say, across a continent like India, where there's so little air conditioning. Mm. And you're talking about a, a mass mortality event. Yeah. And I think, Mario, we're going to, we're, we're tipping towards a mass mortality event yeah. where one of these heat waves, we're going to get unlucky and get a heat wave in the wrong place at the wrong mm. time that is going to kill staggering numbers of people. And you know what's going to happen as a result of that? Yeah. Nothing we're going to just go shrug glad it wasn't and glad it was them and it wasn't us
0: yeah well nothing I've written down nothing for a reason Uh, but another place that that something really bad is happening is in America Mm -hmm. where in California um uh, the the drought season has just gone on and on and on the forest fires are 20 upraged.
2: years uh, Mario it's now officially classified as a mega drought it's 20 years 2000 in many areas in California and western US since they last had any meaningful measurable rainfall and the lake mead is at the lowest level it has been since since yeah. the la- it's, it's an artificial lake since it was created
0: and the significance of this part of the world is serious oh. because this is the food producing area for America, of an awful lot of their food. That's right. So and America is going to have a, soon have a major problem with that part of the world producing food and they're going to have to get it somewhere else.
2: That's right. And we saw that, for example, Russia had a major, um, a major uh, heat wave in 2010 that killed thousands of people and it damaged their wheat harvest really badly. So Russia in 2010 stopped exporting wheat and the effect of that was it probably propelled the Arab Spring because food prices in the Middle East rose and that was part of, of it because we're in this interconnected world. At the moment, we have this amazingly resilient system whereby, you know, let, I'll give you an example. In 2018, we had a mega drought right here in Ireland and left to our own devices, most of our cattle would have died they would have died of starvation because the grass stopped growing. Mm. And these are supposedly grass-fed cattle. Mm. But luckily, thanks to globalisation, we were able to ship in uh, grass and feed from South America, from France. Imagine for a second we either hadn't the resources, or let's say nobody was selling. Those animals would simply have died. They'd have died of hunger or in some cases, thirst. And this is in Ireland in 2018. At the moment, we have a remarkably resilient system where if somebody over here is short something, we buy it over here, and that's sort where of a globalised system works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then, it exposes some incredible vulnerabilities, under underlying vulnerabilities, that at the moment, we're all getting our stuff from God knows where along increasingly rickety, fully stretched supply chains. And these supply chains are much more brittle than we think.
0: Um, John, just to get even more depressed for a second, right? How bad, that's how bad it could get in the world, right? So we're talking about mortality level droughts in sub-Sahara or sub-Asia continent. Um, how bad could it get in Ireland? So, for example, we've talked about this before. Based on, let's say, even tipping points having been reached in the next 30, 40 years. What kind of things could you see happening in Ireland? I mean, we used to talk on the radio about places disappearing.
2: Yeah, I think the thing that we're going to, the, the, the climate impact that we're, is most likely to, to hit us hard is um, coastal inundation, and, and, and when you say
0: coastal inundation, yeah. what people think that's just like rocks being eroded. Okay, coastal
2: inundation. Let's take let's take Dublin since we're here. That means the loss of Sandy Mount. I know that some so people th- say th- Sandy Mount. You know, nobody I like lives there anyway.
0: Well, you're talking about the most affluent area of Ireland. Yeah, sure, Sh- Aylesbury Road is but a stone's throw away.
2: And now they'll have uh, sea glimpses all the way from Aylesbury Road. Uh, you take areas reclaimed areas like Merino. They're going back to the sea. Uh, you take uh, what we call the island of Hoth. Um, the area behind Hoth, Sutton, yeah. is very, just above sea level. Hoth, Ian
0: Dempsey lives there. Yeah, well, uh, He's gone then,
2: is he? Yeah, he, well, he'll be coming to work on a boat. But joking <laughs> apart, uh, Hoth will be an island by 2050.
0: I'd better tell him, the year. no wonder he's friends with this guy called Eugene who runs Hoth
2: Cruises. This, you see, deep down these guys know and they're planning ahead.
0: Ian. Stuff, yeah. yeah. Clearly, I'm not sure he's clearly. in that. He's Bill, Bill Gates and himself, Jeff Bezos. You know, they're That's absolute right. masters of the universe. But no, um, but yeah, no, no joke. Yeah. So, so, okay, so, coastal
2: inundation. We're going. Our infrastructure. So much of our infrastructure is built around the coasts, and, and this is traditional because uh, you know human settlements were always coastal because of the ease of trade. So our river estuaries and our coastal areas are our most densely populated, and we have our most expensive infrastructure clo- within a meter or two of sea level. So by mid-century depending on how lucky or unlucky we get. Um, You take a a metre of sea level rise if we're a little unlucky by mid-century, we'll we'll be getting that and more by end-century. But by mid-century, you add a metre uh, and then with that, storm surges. So So talk
0: about the edges of Ireland then. Yeah,
2: well basically that means, what will happen is people who've never been flooded will be flooded. Their insurance company will pay out once. And then they'll never get insurance again. Whole areas, right? Take Sandy Mount. Sandy Mount, the seawall in Sandy Mount will be breached one of these days. The insurance industry will pay out billions and they will never insure a property down there again. So all those, that exclusive seafront property, once it's been flooded out badly like that. And the insurance companies, by the way, are some of the smartest people in the world, right? They will take your money for now. But the insurance industry globally is bracing for climate. It is now the biggest factor in insurance uh, planning worldwide. I'd also say, Mario, that last year, 2020, uh, more, cli- more migration happened globally because of severe weather than warfare. And if you want to call that progress, it's the first time, certainly in the last hundred years, that we have more climate migrants than migrants as a result of war. Right. But unfortunately, climate and war go, they're like um, a horse and carriage.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, And now it's time for a commercial break Brought to you by our friends at Curry's PC World Have you ever had a kitchen disaster And didn't know what to do? Well Curry's PC World have got your back Just like this gentleman discovered When he tried his hand at cooking dinner For some very special guests and dignitaries
1: Oh, for God's sake. This thing is useless. Michael D., what are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing, woman? I'm cooking. Cooking for who? What? For For the King of Togo. The dignitaries. They're arriving this evening, the reception. But you've never even cooked so much as an egg in your life. Well, as indoor dining doesn't look as if it's going to happen for the next 50 years. I thought I'd learn. This... Blender is falling apart. That's not a blender. That's what? a coffee machine. What's this, Yoke? Dad, that, that's a food processor. You can't. It's about do... a hundred years old, woman. <gasps> oh, much oh, it's, it's on fire! What? The Rogan Josh. It's on fire! The cooker. Oh, Relaxed. the cooker's knackered. Sabina. Take it Sabine, evening. do something. Hello. Sabine.
0: Is that Curry's PC World? Yes. I see you have a range of excellent kitchen appliances on sale at the moment.
1: Sabine. Yes.
0: It's Orson Oektron phoenix park may i give my compliments to the chef
1: uh, yes i am the chef your highness oh really yes i prepared everything myself with my own hand yes.
0: the rogan josh is absolutely incredible well michael d has always been good with curries haven't you michael d really uh,
1: <laughs> yes yes indeed i have
0: <laughs> curry's pc world kitchen appliances fit for a king So you know what to do. When disaster strikes in your kitchen, get yourself down to Curry's BC World. Now, it's back to the chat. You said a minute ago that there might be, you know, extinction level, sort of, or or, or mortality level um, events that happen. And what will people do about it, you said? Nothing. And this kind of brought to mind another aspect of this conversation that might be worth getting into. And that is that... You know, if, if you're not depressed already, listening to this, listeners, um, be prepared to be very depressed <laughs> in the next two minutes. Hang in there, hang in there, please. Um, but listen, there have been five or six extinction events in the history of planet Earth, um, down through the um, millennia, and listen, it's reinvented itself. To quote, kind of a Louis this Walsh. It's well, not that the Earth, Louis, the Earth isn't Louis Walsh. You need to reinvent yourself, but. Um, Humans have no necessary right to go on forever. We believe, as these sentient kind of clever human beings, that we're meant that we look far into the distance, look far ahead. and We think we're going to go on forever, but we have no right to suppose that we'll go on forever. And one of the articles that you sent me, which I found very, very interesting, was this whole idea that at base, we're primates, John. We're hierarchical, we're nasty, we're brutish. And that we're not cut out for cooperation. Humans aren't cut out for cooperation with each other. Yes, we will cooperate a little bit with each other if it's worth it to you and worth it to me yeah. in the short term. But when it's only worth it for us in the long term, we won't cooperate together. Unlike, for example, ants. Ants, millions and billions of ants will get together and they'll lift a big, huge anthill and they'll come together. Millions of birds, murmurations of starlings and fish will go move at the same time and do things. But humans don't do that because we're primates and we're hierarchical. So, some could say, John, that our species is kind of doomed to extinction.
2: In a, in a sense, Mario, we're all doomed to extinction. 99% of all species that have ever existed have, got, have already gone extinct. That's just the nature of extinction. Extinction is, is as much a part of life as, as life.
0: George Hook is still here, though. Uh,
2: well, I mean, there's some dinosaurs that, that there's no accounting <laughs> for. But no, I mean, seriously, ex- extin- extinction is a part of life. And this came in, by the way, we only discovered this, the Victorians discovered in the 19th century when they started digging up Mm. um, the the fossilised remains of creatures that had never been seen by humans. And the penny suddenly dropped that not only do massive creatures exist, but they can disappear. And that was a kind of an epiphany where we came to realise that existence is is conditional. Mm. We don't have a right to be here. Now there is a concept you may have heard called Spaceship Earth and I know we might be talking about Jeff Bezos and friends later on and their spaceships but there is another concept known as Spaceship Earth and this is the idea that we're this little ball floating through a very hostile space. Everything everything outside seven or eight kilometres up there wants to kill you. right? <laughs> so the only little corner of the known universe that doesn't want to kill you is right here where we are. Everything else is hostile. So we're this spaceship guiding through space with this really ultra-thin um, atmosphere. Now, if I had a beach ball and I use nail polish to cover the beach ball, I know this is getting a bit weird. Go on. Right. The thinness of the nail polish coating the beach ball would be the thinness of the atmosphere relative to the size of the Earth. Mm. That's how staggeringly thin. When you look up at the blue sky, it's only about between 12 and 20 kilometers up there. Mm. So it's literally like from here to Bray. Mm. Okay. That's how thin the global atmosphere is. And that is the the difference between life and death on the planet. And we have dumped our junk Mm. into that tiny little area, year after year, decade after decade, for 150, 200 years. Mm. And we have done it, and the scientists have said, guys, this whole atmosphere thing, it's a lot smaller and a lot more breakable than it looks. And by the way, that is your life support. That is the the window in the cockpit of spaceship Earth. Mm. Please stop trying to break the window, guys, Mm. because if you break that window, Everything outside the glass is bad. And that's a way to think about our atmosphere. It's also a way to think about our oceans. They all work together. Our atmosphere and the oceans are basically mirror systems. They work together. You break them, you bought them. And this is the problem. We have decided, and you, and you use the primate analogy, we've decided to gorge ourselves on the world. we figured out how. And it's one of those things that maybe, maybe it's you might call it a, a, a a tale, if you like, that we stumbled across certain, certain knowledge. And probably the greatest knowledge that we stumbled across was the ability to harness fossil fuels. So about 200 years ago, roughly, we figured this out. Mm. That gave us godlike access to power and energy like no humans have ever done. And to give you a, a quick stat on that, humans used and, and applied more energy in the 20th century than in all the preceding 20 centuries combined. So this is a hyper-exponential energy growth. With that energy went population, pollution, nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon dioxide, all the, all the trace gases and so on. And on the other side of that slope of, of explosive exponential growth, on the other side of that slope is the rapid running down of the spacecraft. We're running the battery of planet Earth down really, really quickly. Now, you can be fatalistic, if you wish, and say, well, sod it. I don't care. I'll be dead in a while, you know, and so on. Uh, or you can be very concerned for your kids and your grandkids. At the moment, we're operating as if we don't care. And either, first of all, we don't know, or if we know, we don't care, or it's too big. This is too big a problem. I can't get my head around it. I've got bills to pay.
0: But we care, but we can't cooperate. This that, is, that was, that was the, one of the themes of the article. So... Yeah. We're not able to cooperate. So like, look at that from a, you know, a microcosmic level, whether we're in a kind of a moral hazard position, whether we're in town or we're at home in our neighborhoods going, I'm not doing it if he's not doing it. But then you can macrocosm with that as well. China's not doing it because and you're just going, we're not cooperating. Yeah. So so why aren't we cooperating?
2: Maybe it's our nature. I mean, I use the spacecraft analogy. Maybe a, a better one or, or a more appropriate one is, let's say we're in a boat. And let's say one end of the boat is, is leaking. But luckily, there's only poor people in that end of the boat, right? People in the third world, people in the so-called developing world, the global south. We're up in the rich end of the boat and we're looking at them and we have seen them up to their necks in climate impacts. And we're going, foo, thank goodness our end of the boat is still dry. Now, take two or three steps back from the boat and you go, no, no, no structural integrity of the boat is what matters. And you cannot, people say, oh, we'll adjust to this, John, you know, we'll, we'll adapt. You don't adapt to living at the bottom of the sea. Mm. And at the moment, our adaptation plans on climate are the equivalent of planning how to grow gills in the next 20 or 30 years. It's not going to happen. We're not going to adapt to this. We either stop it or it stops us. It's really that... simple Mario.
0: Okay so for ages as well we've been talking about communication and sending out the message. Now one of the things that happened recently was the um, managing director of of, uh, news and RT, John Williams sort of uh, did a mea culpa, apologised for that organisation, our public service organisation, not linking weather events with climate change. Bit late you might think.
2: Yeah I mean I think first of all it was welcome, got to say that, straight off the bat. Uh, Now John Kind of did really dig his own hole on this particular one. You know, he, he he created the problem that he eventually had to solve because really through a series of, of uh, unfortunate online interventions. Mm. Uh, and so I suppose, uh, however, the problem here isn't one man or one individual, and you know and now there's a solution. Mm. I mean, what's incredible is how and okay, we're now talking about a national broadcaster, and so we'll stay there just for a minute. This is an organization, Mario, with a third of a billion euros in revenues that when I asked them why, you know, a number of years ago I said, why do you not have an environment correspondent? And they still don't. Well, they did and they don't but this is a number of years back and they said to me, John, at the moment we can't afford one. This is at the time they had 2,000 employees. We can't afford one. So, what that said to me is priorities. Okay. More recently then they, they had a guy uh, so the, the post was, was basically left uh, empty from 2010 to thir- 2013. Then they took it back but they stuck it in with uh, agriculture. It was a joint post of environment agriculture, otherwise known as the poacher and the (laughs) gamekeeper. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that was basically... It's like
0: you arguing with yourself on the last word or, you know, it's like you arguing with the agriculture, the the, the the beef guys on the last word. Yeah, I mean,
2: exactly. So that was never going anywhere. Uh, Then that was reformulated to be um, science and environment. Uh, One guy. And then, of course, the COVID uh, crisis came along and RT said, well, obviously we we can't do environment anymore because we've um, we've got a COVID crisis now. I mean, I don't know what all the sports guys were doing during all that time there wasn't much sports going on they weren't retrained to do COVID so instead the one and only guy in an organisation now with 1800 people was yanked off environment now you can't put it down to one person there should be teams of people doing this Mario now you take Sky News uh, UK right and I'll give them a, I will give them a plug here they made a decision earlier this year to put out what's called the Daily Climate Show it's about 12 to 15 minutes a day right. twice a day at prime time and it is and it's presented by, by, by a senior presenter who then puts all the Sky correspondents to their paces. So the parliamentary guy has to come in and explain, tell us about the legislation, tell us about the climate impacts. What I find stunning in Ireland is that really experienced journalists, far more senior journalists, they almost take pride in knowing nothing about this. And they also say, take the political guys, right? They take they view politics as, or sorry, they view current affairs as a horse race. So they, you know, you ask them about climate. Say you had one of the the poll cars in here, they'd say, oh yeah, climate's good for the Greens. Yeah, it'll get them a couple of points yeah. in the election. Who cares? Mm. They they actually see it as if it's a Green Party issue. In fact, I got a statement back from RT for an article I'm writing at the moment, and they went through all this, you know, all the great things we've been doing, and one of them is, oh, we've interviewed Green ministers as if that it's their job. And I find this really head-wrecking. Apparently, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin don't think that the protection of life on Earth and the preservation of habitable conditions has anything to do with them. And that wrecks my head.
0: What do you think of, change subjects, right? What sure. do you think of, um, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, publicity recently about Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and everything and billionaires going into space and everything. But Bill Gates is now involving himself more centrally in the, um, in the climate uh, debate. Uh, wh- what do you think of this development?
2: Well, I think the more billionaires we can get into space, the better. <laughs> I would I would send the whole lot of them into space. And I say that, you know, partly seriously and, and partly... Yeah, I was, well, I was saying this to yeah.
0: Patrick. Hmm. This is something from the reading as well. That like Jeff Bezos and Br- Branson and everything, I mean, they're excellent at demonstrating their engineering prowess and ability to, you know, in an alpha male way to get into space. But none of these billionaires, right, want to kind of come up and show you how they will resurface an Arctic ice sheet, you know. So there's no impetus to say this. Hmm. You know, the secret to our future is the governments and people like these people um, repurposing these ice sheets using their incredible scientific wherewithal at their disposal to do it.
2: That's right. And also sovereign governments have been drained of money and resources to deal with, with whether it's child poverty or education or whatever. They've been drained of money because the billionaire set have become so brilliantly effective at siphoning money away from society and into their own pockets. We're back to effectively a 19th century gilded class that is operating at a supranational level. And I mean, the idea that someone like Bill Gates can be some kind of climate warrior to my mind, is is ludicrous. The single greatest, sorry, one of the greatest impediments to any progress on climate action is inequality. And you explained to me how the purveyors of inequality can fix inequality Hmm. without dismantling the system of inequality that they have constructed. Because let's be honest, I don't know how many hours in in the week Jeff Bezos works, but I can assure you there's people in his factories on... The minimum wage or less who work far harder than he does yet he extracts the value from their labour now you say well tough luck John that's capitalism now I'm a capitalist Mario I said this at the outset mm. right and a happy capitalist but this isn't capitalism this is predatory we now have a predatory class, a hyper-rich predatory class that are the major contributors to many of our, of our environmental and our social ills. I mean, we have predators like, for example, the Koch brothers in America who are spending their money to burn down democracy. And this is what happens when billionaires get too rich. They, they, Some of their projects are let's fly to Mars. The other one is let's destroy democracy. Let's uh, launch a, a war because that's what happens when people get too rich. They get bored. They run out of yachts and houses. So next thing, they want to fiddle with democracy. They want to fiddle, fiddle with um, society because this seems to be the the, the the buzz they need to get is to be involved. And as I said, Bill Gates, if he wants to make a difference, fine. Well then, divest. He has more money that any human being could spend in a hundred lifetimes. And to, to say that while there's global poverty and unresolved issues and massive inequality, then to, to my mind, uh, I said, if billionaires are the are the answer, I shudder to think what the
0: question was. Right. Well, messaging, communication. Um, you mentioned a minute ago you were um, plugging Sky News and the way they, they did a good... They've been doing um, good little interstitial pieces on it. Um, but is there a problem with messaging in general? I mean, we've been kind of the same tone, really, for the last 40 years. And that is, and not to, not to, <laughs> not to I cast any you. aspersion <laughs> against you, you speak so brilliantly about it in a doom and gloom way that I love having you on. And and, and I kind of think catastrophizing is one way of looking at it. But do you, the idea that when you catastrophize something, people become fatalistic and they go, well, there's nothing I can do about it. We're all going to die. Um, kind of it turns people off. Or is there a different way we should be mes- messaging? Is there another way? Is Sky News showing the way? Is that, is that, a, is that a different way?
2: I think it is. I think um, it's so easy to lurch, uh, you know, from uh, this isn't a problem to there's no hope. Okay. Yes. I, I still operate in the area between those two positions. I genuinely do. Now you can call it catastrophizing i'm going to give you a different analogy right let's just say for a moment that you find a lump okay and you go to the doctor who sends you to the oncologist and the oncologist sits you down and says right we need to have a conversation you've got a problem now at that point what do you want the oncologist to say do you want him to bullshit you and say, listen, you'd be grand. You put a bit of ointment, a bit of pseudocream on the lump there. It'd be grand. And when the lump is three times the size, maybe, you know, take some disprin. Is that what you want? Do you want to be lied to by your oncologist? No, most people say, actually, no. I want some tough love. I want the oncologist to level with me and say, look, you've got a problem. There are solutions, maybe. The times ahead are going to be tough, right? You're going to have a terrible time. But we, But if you do all of these things, I'm not making any promises, but we may be able to save your life. Now, are you up for it or do you want to walk out the door and continue on? Now, at the moment, we are in the existential oncology ward and we are whistling out the door saying, I'll put a bit of pseudocream on that lump and don't mind these oncologists. Sure, what do they know? Sure, I saw a lad on the internet said these fellas know nothing. And that's where
0: we're at, Mario. Okay. I'm about to just pass out here. <laughs> John, will you be are you up for taking a few calls? Absolutely, Mario. Bring them on. There's a f- bring them on, really. Well, I don't know <laughs> who's going to be calling. There's a few people on the line who have been um, who who want to have a word with you, if you wouldn't mind sharing your um, your wisdom with them, yeah? Happy to. Um, I think Miriam O'Callaghan is on the line. Say hello to Miriam. Hi, Miriam.
1: Hi, John. Um, been listening to you for the last 40 minutes or so. I just have a couple of questions, John. First of all, I live in Rathmines. So, you remember the inundation thing you were talking about? How, how long?
2: Well, the great news, Miriam, and delighted that you called into the show. The great news is that... Hold
1: on, let write that down. Great news.
2: Yeah, great news is that you're soon going to have um, sea, sea frontage.
1: Okay. Do you think I could get 695 for it?
2: I, <laughs> I, I think so. I okay. think, I think, I think your, your assets could well be underwater.
1: Okay I'm just selling at the moment Okay and the second question is I heard what you said about communication So how would you Any tips for maybe on primetime Should we do a primetime investigates maybe Into climate
2: Yeah that would be good Uh, In fact one of your colleagues uh, did a prime time the other night Is that George Lee? uh, No it wasn't George In fact uh, no it was uh, Sarah McInerney in
0: fact Oh forget her Okay thanks John (laughs) Bye Your next uh, caller is actually Michael O'Leary's on the line Mm. Ah, Michael.
1: Hello. Michael, it, it's been... You Shut know? up for a second, will you? <laughs> you were talking a minute ago about lumps. I currently have a lump on my arse. The lump wasn't there before you started talking today, but it's suddenly there. I need cream. Will you wipe it on the lump on my arse? <laughs>
2: Well, Michael, I think that probably the best way to treat that lump would be a very solid kick to the said arse. I like it.
1: I like a man who talks dirty. Very few men talk back to me like that. Not even Eddie Wilson does that. <laughs> right. Did you say something about putting um, limits on my miles?
2: I'm afraid so, Michael. Yeah, I think I think uh, aviation is a wee bit too cheap. And I mean, I know there's nothing cheaper than, than, than Ryanair. But I I think it's probably one of those things, yeah, we're going to have to look at Did you
1: think that was an insult to me? I was actually taking that as a compliment. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Great. Uh, Jackie Healy, Danny Healy Ray is on the line. Hi, Danny.
1: Hello, John. Can you hear me?
0: Loud and clear.
1: I want to say I've been listening for the last 45 minutes in the carrier. I want to say, John... I'm very, very, very sorry for everything I've done. Every. Are you there? Still there. Every piece of red meat. Every fat. Every time I've left the heater on or whatever, I'm sorry, John.
2: It's never too late, Danny. You turn over a new leaf and you might, you might have a chat with the brother as well. I think uh, he needs to get his thinking cap on about this too.
1: Guy, I'm coming out of the closet.
2: Good man, Danny.
1: Thank you. That's
2: a strange one.
1: Strange one. Do you, th-
0: you think you had an
2: impact on him? I think so. It was only a matter of time. I knew it was just a question of finding the right combination of words. He's no, he's one. there. They're all good men. Shit. Sting is on the line. <laughs> sting, oh yeah. no. Sorry about that, jibe j- j- about the 1980 Sting.
1: Hi, this is Sting. You really pissed me off, you know that, John? Slagging me off about the rainforest.
2: Well, Sting, I just want you to know everything you do is magic.
1: Shit. Even worse than I thought. Okay, thanks, John.
0: Sting. Unusual. I didn't, I didn't see that happening. No, well... But he was an original environmentalist. Yeah, he
2: was. And, and I think I think he was moved from the environment to tantric sex, as far as I know. So I suppose,
0: uh, well, just whatever... Are you trying to tell me something here? Is this an area you're going...
2: Well, you know, I think... I think uh, pseudocream. That there's a
0: certain amount heat. of... Uh,
2: yeah, deep heat and a little bit of rubbing and Forests. a certain amount of friction. And uh, <laughs> things, things getting hotter.
1: Stop. It's getting hotter
0: here. <laughs> OK, well, listen, I think um, thank you so much for, for coming in. John, you're you're um, you've been I've been talking to you since I started broadcasting the Sunday roast on the radio and now in the podcast. Great to have you here. Um, I hope uh, people out there will get some value out of this podcast. Um, it's done in good faith and uh, there is hope.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think every action that we take has an impact for for good and for ill. There's a lot to fight for, there's a lot to lose, but there's also a lot to save. And it's way, way too soon to be thrown in the towel. In fact, if you're new to this, um, this is a really good time to not be thrown in the towel. In fact, this is a time to find out what it is that you can do. And if I were to give you a single thing, it isn't about sorting out your your plastic. It's um, talk to your politicians. They're mm. the ones with their hands on the controls. Yeah. Uh, make some decisions like That's that. That's probably the best yeah. thing
0: you could do. Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean,
2: we're often gold into believing that this is all about personal behaviour. And I, I'm reminded that the folks who invented the personal carbon footprint were uh, British Petroleum. They pushed a lot of money behind that idea because they wanted to distract attention from corporations and, and the politicians that they fund. Dump it onto you and me, Mario. Make you feel bad because feeling bad about climate is a great way of shutting down. Because you say, oh, that guy makes me feel bad. And because of that feck him, I'm going to shut down, right? I'm not going to do anything just to, you know, stuff that guy. I'm not going to do anything. They want you to feel bad and to shut down. The answer to it is, I'm not selling optimism. What I'm selling is stoicism. We're in that oncology ward that I described. This isn't a time for, it isn't a time for despair, but it isn't a time for foolish optimism. It's a time to get serious, to look this in the eye and say, We're grown ups. What would grown ups do in this situation? And kick on from there.
0: Talk to politicians. That's what I would take from that.
2: Absolutely. All the way. And really talk to them. And don't be fobbed off. Politicians ultimately will respond to what we, not so much to what we want, Mario, to what we demand. And also, talk to your radio station, talk to your, talk to your broadcaster, uh, drop John Williams a letter. If he's doing a great job, tell him so. If he's not, tell him that too.
0: Fair enough. John Gibbons, thank you so much. Pleasure, Mario. And I hope you enjoyed that chat with John Gibbons. I certainly did, as I always do with John. Thanks for listening. Any thoughts or comments, please mail me directly on mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, at GiftGrubMario. I'm on Facebook, Mario Rosenstock. I check in with them all, all the time. Thanks, of course, to Curry's PC World for their ongoing support. It's great to have Curry's on board with us. Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review the podcast if you can. Give us a rating, and that really helps things go forward. Next episode, the great cork comedian, Ty Kickey, brilliant comedian, very funny, also a very political character, um, will be on to have a chat with me. Make sure to check that one out. Take care. Bye-bye.